Hi everyone, I'm Shauna Kaur. Welcome to our Tipping Point podcast where we discuss all things climate. This week we spoke to Maynooth University climate expert, Professor John Sweeney, about the impact humans are having on the climate and the extreme weather that's causing. So I'd just like to kick off, John, with um, there are still people out there that don't really know um, like how these things kind of link in together. So I was just hoping you could explain to us how we know the weather extremes we are seeing now across the world and even here in Ireland with our, you know, our heat waves across the summer. How, how do we know those are linked to the climate crisis? Well, for a long time, of course, um, the variation in weather, I suppose, from season to season and from year to year was well within the kind of historical range that people had observed over the years. And it was rather like trying to discern a, a crackly radio station. Uh, you were trying to discern the signal from the noise. And uh, that was very much the case with, with, with weather extremes for many years. But of course, they now have become something that are so common and something that are now so frequent compared to the past that it's no longer uh, an issue for many people. And what has been effectively the, I suppose, the, the nail in the coffin of the sceptics in this area has been uh, advances which have been made in, uh, I suppose, computer modelling of climate. Whereas in the past, the, there was a lot of limitations in terms of computer modelling. We could only run uh, maybe a, a global climate model uh, once or twice given the huge computer expenditure you required for that. And that meant that, you know, the, there was a lot of uncertainty about what was human and what was natural. But we can now run models, not once or twice, but we can now run them hundreds of times uh, for the same kind of um, outputs. But what we can do especially is we can run them without carbon dioxide enhanced atmospheres and with carbon dioxide enhanced atmospheres. So we can run them 500 times with pre-industrial carbon dioxide and we can run them uh, 500 times with the current levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And this gives us the facility to say, well, if we hadn't changed the atmosphere, how often would we get something like a heat wave such as we've had in Europe this summer? How often would we get terrible floods like we've had in Pakistan this autumn? How often would we get the kind of that dramatic um, sort of glacier collapses and things that we've had in recent years? And what comes back from those results is quite alarming because what it tells us really is that the probability of those events happening is, is very much more greatly enhanced by what we've seen in terms, of, uh, in terms of changes to the atmosphere. And in particular, if you want to take a few examples of that, we know now, for example, that the European heat wave we had this year um, was something like, like twice as probable as it would have been without uh, changing the atmosphere. We know that the German floods were nine times more likely last year as a consequence of changing the atmosphere. But we can run those models and say, well, 
what would the Earth's temperature have been like in the absence of, of uh, enhanced greenhouse gases? And that's where we see the, if you like, the only way that we can match up the observations of temperature change with what the models are telling us is if we put in greenhouse gases into the models. And it's a very strong confirmation, really, from all of those, I suppose, new techniques that tells us that the world is no longer changing on a natural basis, that we are in control of the Earth's climate at the moment. And that's a very significant change from where we were uh, in our grandfather's and grandmother's times when they were dependent on, I suppose, the vagaries of climate to make a living, to save the hay, to save the turf. Um, they were prisoners of climate. And now, of course, climate is a prisoner of us. So we've moved away from those kinds of um, old ideas that climate is something that will always change naturally and we have no impact on it, to confirmation scientifically now that <clears throat> we are the people driving climate, that we are the people increasing those extremes, that we are the people that will determine what lies in the future for the next generation. So we can see what impact carbon dioxide has, we can see what impact methane has, and we can also see that things wouldn't have changed that much had those not been in the atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, if we if we look at the way in which we would have expected global temperature to change without methane and CO2 in the atmosphere, we actually would have been expecting global temperature to be maybe even slightly falling over the past uh, 40 years. Uh, but what we've seen, of course, is, is a dramatic rise uh, of, of 1.2 degrees um, in the global average temperature um, since pre-industrial times. And, you know, that's been happening not at 1.2 degrees everywhere in the world. There are places where it's been three and even more degrees of warming, such as in the high Arctic, such as in the interiors of the continents. Um, and it's been much less, as you might expect, over the oceans, which take a long time to respond to forcing of that kind. So when we talk about 1.2 and, and 1.5 degrees, I think it's important to remember it's a global average. And, you know, that global average may well be magnified over key areas of the world, over key breadbaskets of the world, over key cities um, and, and places in the world where there are large populations at risk of suffering from those kinds of temperature increases. Yeah, I'm just listening to, to, to that and, and, and you've outlined the, the extremes uh, that we've seen and the, you mentioned the historical record and it seemed the summer that just went, I mean, we were seeing literally historical records broken two, three times in a week if you were following the, the news and the headlines on this in terms of temperatures that were just kept breaking records uh, almost day after day at one point. Uh, is there a sense that even people like yourself who've studied this for a long number of years and the scientific community are, are surprised that the, the, the speed of this in, in recent years, has it kind of uh, taken you by surprise, uh, some of the extremes we've seen? No, I have to say it hasn't. Um, I mean, we've been talking about this for a long time. And um, what, what we think of as climate uh, is rather like a bell-shaped distribution with you know the everyday events in the middle 
the every year events in the middle and the extremes kind of very much at the tail of that distribution on both sides. Now, when you change the temperature, the ruling, if you like, uh, control on climate, if you shift that uh, curve a little to the right, a little 1.1 degrees to the right, what you find is that the tails become much more displaced than the means. Um, and the extremes become much more common uh, in that new situation than they were in the old situation. So what we're seeing, therefore, is, if you like, the extremes telling us that these are the harbingers, these are the signals of a change in average conditions, a change in climate. And we haven't really been surprised by them. I think what has been surprising uh, a little has been the speed with which they're occurring. I think I would agree with you, Neil, that models tend to be very conservative vehicles. Um, they kind of move incrementally from year to year to year. They don't necessarily replicate well the way that nature works. And nature is much more of a step change type operation where you lurch from one thing to another um, in, in almost a very quick manner rather than in a gradual slope. And I think what we're seeing has been that those extremes have been you know, coming a bit more quickly in some parts of the world than we would expect to have seen them from the model output alone. Um, and it's a bit of a warning to us, I think, that, you know, we, we, we shouldn't put all our faith in models. Uh, we, we should think of models as giving us a signal for the future rather than a definitive projection of what's going to happen. But those extremes um, and, and those changes, I think, we now realise that because the Earth changes, if you like, in a stepwise fashion, it renders us uh, very vulnerable to certain tipping points occurring and to tipping points where once we pass a threshold, they may be very difficult to, to recover from, to get back from. And those tipping points are, are, are now increasingly, if you like, being recognised by, by climate scientists. Um, we know, for example, that once we get to uh, maybe 1.2 degrees or even, so let's say, between 1.5 and 2 degrees of warming, the so-called uh, Paris range of warming, we know that we're already starting off things which we may not recover from at that level. We know that the Greenland ice sheet, for example, may well already have started uh, an irrecoverable melting out. It may take centuries to do it but we may not be able to get back to where we were uh, 30 years ago. The same in the West Antarctic. We know that the tropical coral reefs will be gone effectively uh, after we pass two degrees of warming. They have already started disappearing. We've seen the bleaching. We've seen the problems of the barrier reef. We know that those kind of things are already triggered and may not be recoverable. And there's a whole other host of uh, tipping points, which I think are, are worth mentioning. For us in Ireland, of course, what will happen to the, uh, to the Gulf Stream? Um, what will happen to the Atlantic circulation? Will that current collapse? And the indications are that it, it will weaken very significantly and may well uh, collapse if we get to more uh, higher temperature levels, maybe four or five degrees above 
the, the, the pre-industrial levels. So there's a whole host of, uh, if you like, new equilibria, which the Earth's climate may begin to accommodate itself to. And it's rather like, you know, if you stand uh, a rectangular box on its long axis, you can tip it over and it may not be easy to get back. Whereas if you, if you have it on its, uh, you know, flat, it may be more resilient. And the Earth's climate, we now believe, is susceptible to reaching new accommodations, new, new equilibria with some of these change tipping points. And they may not be favourable, of course, for us um, here to, to, to continue to use the Earth as a life support system for the kind of population levels we have at the moment. So <clears throat> I think extremes that you talk about there they're happening a little quicker. They're threatening tipping points. And those tipping points may well, for areas like Western Europe down the road, be of crucial importance. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you brought up the, the tipping points and there's been a lot of talk uh, or a bit of talk around those. And indeed, we've, we've called this podcast tipping points because we, we think that, you know, it's, it's reaching or at least that's a, that's a, that's a point where the, the conversation is getting to uh, whether you can tip uh, one way into the extremes you're talking about or the impacts you're talking about are, I mean, potentially tipped back by people changing behaviour and societies and so on, isn't it? But, I mean, can you give us an, an idea of the, the kind of impacts on, on, on people's lives or on civilization itself if those tipping points are crossed? Well, obviously, for much of Western Europe, if the Gulf Stream fails, um, we go from a situation of warming back to a situation where we have similar winter temperatures to the Labrador coast of, of, of Canada. Uh, and we, 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 we know what that means in terms of our productivity and our ability to, to grow food here as well. Um, in terms of the loss of the Amazonian rainforest, of course, it means that that great source of moisture is lost for areas like North America, where the plume no longer will be carried up to. Uh, in terms of the Arctic sea ice, I think that's something that um, we're beginning to come to terms with now because we know that the Arctic sea ice is declining by around 4% per year and may well be gone by mid-century. And, and why that tipping point is important is that that border between sea ice and ocean uh, is a very important border in terms of its influence on the, the winds above. Um, we know that the jet stream is quite strongly influenced by the temperature gradient between uh, a cold Arctic and a warm tropic. And the, the greater that gradient is, then the stronger the jet stream blows around the Earth in a very quick and very re reliable manner. But once you warm up the Arctic more by changing, let's say, the Arctic sea ice into open ocean, you change from a shiny surface, which reflects solar energy, into a dark surface of the ocean from above, which absorbs a lot more heat. And this means that the gradient between the tropics and the Arctic is very much reduced. It means that, the, if you like, the driving force of the jet stream is also very much reduced. And rather like a river, which has lost its gradient, the jet stream then is liable to start meandering around rather than being reliable. And when the jet stream starts meandering, we get extremes across the mid-latitudes. We get very, very hot summers 
uh, in places where the jet stream has wobbled north. We get cold winters in, in, in instances where it has wobbled south. But we get an increasingly unreliable climate. We get an increasingly, uh, I suppose, um, increased frequency of extreme seasons. And <coughs> we've seen that here in, in Ireland um, over the past few years, where we've had a cold winter um, and a very hot winter, a very warm winter in North America, where the loop of the jet stream has been south of us here um, in Ireland for the winter and north of North America, giving very mild conditions. And you may remember the, the beast from the east, which was a good example of that a few years ago. And similarly, we've had almost um, unnoticeable winters when we've had the daffodils in Kerry uh, blooming in, in December, for example, um, when it's been very mild here. And we've seen uh, in the same uh, situation, the loop of the jet stream south over North America giving blizzards in Texas and places like that which you wouldn't normally expect to see with that frequency. So those kind of interconnections are only now beginning to, to I think, become researched fully. And we're beginning to see that the Earth's climate is rather like a balloon. You know, if you punch it in one place, it bulges somewhere else. And uh, we, we therefore, you know, have to be conscious of the fact that um, those tipping points, those, those extremes that we're seeing, um, and we've seen them most recently in, in Pakistan, for example, they may be part and parcel of a situation we're going to have to come to terms with, but they're going to also be part and parcel of problems down the road for not just the, the developing countries, but even for us here uh, in, in places like Ireland. And the, the difficulty for so many people seems to be that they it's almost like they can't envision those changes. You know, you hear time and again, people across Ireland saying, well, you know, we've got a very temperate climate. We're not really hot. We're not really cold. We did see yesterday that we could be expecting snow for the first time in 12 years. Is I, I wonder, is that climate related? But then we had our heat waves. People were delighted at the heat waves. Everyone's happy to get snow at Christmas. But but for people in Ireland, um, is there something that you would like to say about the impact that this is going to have just on daily life. I mean, obviously, your weather conditions and everything else will impact your ability to to grow food. Like you said, you know, what, how can you see that impacted in the future? Well, I, I think you make a good point about people's perception of the problem. And that is a major difficulty that maybe it's climate scientists' pro failure to communicate that properly that's behind it. But it's true also that when you talk about climate, People mix it up with weather and, you know, the distinction between weather and climate is lost on the average person in the street. You know, they talk about snow tomorrow or whatever as if that's climate. But I think the, the distinction of, of what we get, what we expect to get from our weather forecast for the next few days and the general trend of what we expect to see over the next few years is a fundamental distinction. And, and that's something that there's an education um, role, I think, to try and get that message across to people. I think also um, it's important to, to remember that people have very short-term priorities. You know, people will not worry too much about 10 years from now, about, you know, what's going to happen in 2050. They will worry about paying the mortgage this winter. They will worry about heating their house this winter. 
They will worry about short term things and they will push those long term concerns into the background a bit. And that's quite normal. Um, and it's something that, you know, again, it's the responsibility of, of government and the leaders of society to take that longer term view and enable people to, to, to have the, the options for the future that their own short term objectives uh, might not necessarily uh, might not necessarily prioritize to the same extent. Um, now, the second half of your question was interesting, and I've forgotten it. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't worry. I was just curious. Like you know, we are a temperate climate. You know, we get a bit. Of, we get a bit of rain. We're great at growing grass. We've got cows. We've got sheep. We've got forests. It never gets too hot. It never gets too cold compared to some of the extremes we've seen around the world. But you know, for people in Ireland, is there any indication like can you give them a sort of overview of how that could change because of the climate crisis yeah well i think you know we're blessed in ireland in the sense that we have one of the most equable climates um uh, for our latitude uh, if you like in in the world um if you wanted to get to a place which had a similar difference between winter and summer you'd be going to the caribbean or somewhere like that um uh, and that means that we have certain advantages, uh, you know, in terms of our agriculture, we can keep cattle out a lot more in the field than other countries can. Uh, in terms of our growing season, we can grow things a little later into the autumn and into the and earlier in the spring. For the climate changes that we in Ireland have already seen, um, and we in Ireland are a mid-latitude country, so we're going to change Maybe not instantly, but we're going to change according to the global average. And we've already seen Ireland warm up by between half and one degree um, as compared to the global average. And that has meant um, discernible changes in our growing season. You know, we, winter is now two weeks shorter than it was 20 years ago. Um, we can get, you know, springs, we can get late springs, but we can get early springs especially. Uh, where we can put cattle out in the field earlier, keep them there longer. Um, our autumns are, are a bit longer as well. We don't really get much severe weather until we get well into the winter in, in normal years. So, But these are things which are almost uh, imperceptible to the average person because, again, there will be year-to-year -year variations where, you know, we will get a, a late spring or we will get a wet summer uh, and they will not necessarily register with people as part and parcel of what's going on. But we can see that we've changed, for example, our rainfall regime. We're now getting heavier bursts of rainfall more frequently than we did uh, in the past. We, have, we know our temperature changes have occurred at all seasons of the year. Um, if you look at the 30-year average from 1991 uh, to 2020, uh, you see that for any of the Irish meteorological stations, it's warmer in almost every month of the year. We see our rainfall has increased by about 8% on average over the island as well. So because of that, we're getting more frequent flood events, for example, and that's going to be the thing which will register with people in the future, even at the moment, the fact that our big problem in Ireland is not temperature. We, we wouldn't really cry if we had a few extra degrees in winter or summer. Uh, you know, we welcome it in many ways. But what will be our problem will be the warmer ocean offshore will give us more rainfall. And that rainfall 
we now from our models know will probably happen mostly in winter. So we have, um, first of all, a flood problem of, of growing severity, and it's especially severe in the west of Ireland, nearest the warm ocean. And that's going to be uh, not very welcome because those parts of Western Ireland are not going to welcome more winter rainfall. So we're going to have to spend a lot of money um, uh, protecting communities, protecting towns and cities as much as possible from the adverse effects of that hazard. And by the same token, the models are also suggesting that the summer rainfall events will be um, such that the east of Ireland will be drier in summer. And um, we will get, yes, we will get downpours of really intense rainfall from convective activity in the summer, thunderstorm activity in the summer. But on average, when you go east of the Shannon, we expect rainfall amounts to diminish. And there are signs of this already happening. Now, that's equally serious because when you go to the east coast, that's where the people live. That's where the population is concentrated. And that's where, therefore, you're going to see competition in summer for water resources. Um, farmers are going to want more water, even for irrigation. Uh, towns and cities are now going to have problems with their water supply increasingly in the summer months. And we've seen that even this summer, where we've been urged to conserve water, especially in Eastern Ireland, we know that the Dublin water supply is on a knife edge in terms of um, accessing a supply which was created in the 1930s and 40s for a population that was a lot less than we have now today. So we have this twin problem of uh, flood hazard, especially in the West, and also water shortage and water um, supply issues in summer in the East. And in both cases, the taxpayer will pay an enormous amount of money. We know what the Dublin water supply scheme to bring water from the Shannon is going to cost, and we're up in the billions there. We know what the uh, OPW are going to have to spend on uh, flood protection measures, and we're up in the hundreds of millions there as well. So, you know, th there is uh, there are consequences of climate change for Ireland, which we may not be conscious of all the time, but which are going to come back to bite us and to bite um, future populations, future taxpayers, the next generation, uh, much more so than they do um, even at the present time. So um, that consciousness that you talk about, um, I don't know, when, when people get hit in their pockets, uh, I think that consciousness will help uh, crystallise out for them as well. It's often lost that there's a cost to, to an in, inaction there also then as well as the, the costs that people will point to for, for, for kind of uh, what, what kind of the actions that people want to take now are, are costing the economy. But uh, I'm just wondering there as you're talking then about you, you mentioned people having their short term priorities. And we know this winter and the energy crisis and what's going on has, has taken uh, has taken over most people's kind of, uh, you know, consciousness now. Uh, and it's it's dominated the debate about uh, fossil fuels and such for the for the summer. But I mean, having studied this for a long number of years, it, is that frustrating to you or to scientists that 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 slow level of uh, of change that people are willing to take? And do you think they get a sense that is this window rapidly closing to to actually to do these actions and we have to kind of prioritize it, even though these other things are coming and going all the time? I think so. Um... Uh, 
you mentioned the cost of inaction and most of the accountants, most of the economists have quantified the cost of inaction uh, as being uh, several times more than the cost of taking action today. Um, I think um, the Stern report and major reports on the cost of climate change have indicated that, you know, you're, you're looking at around about five times as much in the future if you don't, uh, by comparison to, to taking preventive action today. So, so there is no justification for delaying action. In terms of um, the short-term issue of, of energy, um, yeah, I mean, there are going to be major problems with our energy supply in the next few years, um, not necessarily climate-related, but related to conflict elsewhere. But I think what, what it does teach us, I suppose, is a realisation of the value of energy, which we maybe took for granted in the past. Um, I mean, I'm as big a culprit as anyone. I, I get, my mouth's not listening, but I get told off for boiling a full kettle for a cup of tea and things like this, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we kind of were blasé about using energy inefficiently in the past. Um, and I think this will has caused a, a realisation among people that, yes, it's worth getting your house insulated. It's worth looking at possible renewable energy sources. It's worth buying energy efficient appliances uh, now in a way that you mightn't have thought about before. So I, I think we will emerge from this crisis period of the next year or two with a realisation that, you know, we, we can do things uh, and we can be more energy efficient than we were and we can get our own personal responsibility for climate change reduced by, by taking action at an individual level. Uh, and that will extend into transport, it will extend into farming, um, it will extend into, to, I suppose, uh, what we do for residences, for our households, for our waste as well. So, you know, it's not all bad news. Um, I, I think, you know, there will be a learning coming out of this, although it will be very tough for the next few years for people. And I think in all of that, we have to be conscious as well of the just transition, of the idea that, you know, we, we have to bring people uh, with us and especially we have to look after people who may be disadvantaged by the transition to a low carbon economy. Uh, we know that there are acute problems of fuel poverty in Ireland, uh, that we have to ensure that those who can pay, pay to, 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 if you like, alleviate the burden on those people who are less able to, to cope with that transition. So uh, I think, you know, as well as talking about uh, renewable energy advances and, and decarbonisation of town centres, we have to talk about fuel poverty and how to protect people against that at the same time. And that's part and parcel of, I suppose, accommodating society to the new norm down the road. And sorry, John, just to touch briefly back on, you were talking about the, the food system and agriculture and so on, and the impacts of, of, of the change in climate on that in Ireland. I guess there's a sense that uh, this debate is often, you know, reduced to, you know, city environmentalists versus, uh, you know, rural dwellers and that farmers are, you know, feel scapegoated uh, in some ways in, in the whole debate. But I mean, from what you say, I mean, the status quo, if we like the, the path we're on, is, is, is not something that's going to be, uh, you know, very good for, for farming and agriculture anyway. 
I think agriculture will do okay in the future in Ireland. Um, you know, it will have to accommodate itself to new crops. It will have to accommodate itself to water shortages. But we will be a food producing island. We will be a productive food producing island. And, you know, we have some of the, the best farmers in Europe, it has to be said. Um, the issue with farming really is to find a sustainable form of farming for the future. And, you know, we know now that um, after tense negotiations during July, uh, an accommodation was reached for the sectoral ceilings for various sectors for emissions and that agriculture uh, were bound to a 25% reduction in emissions by 2030. What's less publicised, and, and something that I think is very important to stress, is that there was also a carbon budget for 2021 to 2025. And within that carbon budget, uh, there are very severe restruction, uh, reductions also entailed for all of those sectors. Uh, agriculture has a 10% reduction by 2025 on its 2018 emissions. And that, I think, hasn't really got through to the agricultural community as well as it should. Now, we know that, uh, you know, I have a great admiration for farmers. Uh, they, they, they are extremely hard workers. They are great stewards of the landscape. But like society in general, there are a lot of variations within the farming community. Uh, there are excellent farmers, for example, west of the Shannon, who look after biodiversity very well, who are dependent on pillar two funding from the common agricultural policy, which is mainly the environmental funding sources. And th those are people who uh, I have the best, uh, I suppose, admiration for. When you get to factory farming and intense farming, um, I think, you know, that's where we really have to look seriously at whether or not that's a viable, sustainable future. Um, we have, for example, a situation now where intense dairy farming in Eastern Ireland is associated with not just uh, huge greenhouse gas emissions, but also water pollution problems. And I think we, we do have to think seriously about how far down that road we want to go, because effectively the burden is being passed to other taxpayers uh, down the road for fines or whatever uh, if we fail to meet our obligations. So I think we have to um, question the, I suppose, viability of continuing intensive dairy farming at the scale at which it is at the moment. Um, the average income of a dairy farmer last year was €94,000. The average income for Chagask um, projections for next year for, for dairy farming is €122,000. Um, so that's very different from the, the poor beef farmer west of the Shannon, who probably is, is running his farm at a loss or her farm at a loss. And I think we have to discriminate between those kinds of agricultural practices. I think, you know, we have uh, some of, as I say, some of the best farmers in Europe, but we have to start thinking more about what kind of future we want uh, our own children and grandchildren to inherit if we continue um, to produce greenhouse gas emissions on the scale at which we are at the moment. Agriculture is big. It accounts for 37% of our national emissions. So we can't solve our problem um, 
uh, in Ireland without tackling agriculture. And I think there's a, a lot of work needs to be done in communicating the problem um, to, to, to the agricultural community. Um, I think in general terms, there are some really good entrepreneurs and really good people in that community. But maybe, you know, the, the short-term imperative and the siren voices of, of, of large-scale industrial farming uh, is too loud at the moment, I would argue. Well, it's really interesting. I mean, you've spoken about the sectoral emission ceilings. We know those sums didn't add up, don't we? Um, we also know that we didn't meet um, we didn't meet the requirements of our reductions for twenty twenty. It's looking doubtful for twenty twenty one as well. I mean, like emissions were up another was it four point five percent? So, I mean, there, there's a bit of mixed message in here, isn't there, John? You know, we've got the government. Saying we've got these targets, we've got to meet these targets. But when it comes to the, it comes to crunch time talks, you know, I think there was only one sector across all the sectors that actually was given the target that was recommended. So, I mean, what does that make you think as a scientist? You know, saying we need to do something about this. We we need to be meeting those targets. Well, I've been, I suppose, uh, working off and on on these issues for the past. 30 years almost, and I've seen uh, successive policy initiatives just run into the ground um, when it comes to actually implementing things. Um, in Ireland, we're very good at drawing plans up. We're really good at that. Uh, but when it comes to implementing them and the rubber hits the road, uh, things begin to falter. Now, in terms of our current, um, yes, we did exceed our 2020 targets. We had to buy in uh, hot air from other countries uh, as a fine. Um, and we now are in another phase of the EU um, Fit for 55 programme. And uh, already 2021, we've exceeded our annual um, value, which is the, the value for, for our annual emissions for that programme as well. Um, we know that in 2021, we emitted something just under 70 million tonnes of greenhouse gas equivalent. Um, and that was the first year of, uh, of our five-year carbon budget. Now, you know, we're still talking about targets. And in many ways, I, I think we've moved on from targets. We're now talking about, we should be talking about budgets now um, because we don't talk about financial targets every year. We talk about what's available and how do we, add, how do we distribute a given budget. And what it means, though, is that given that, as you say, we increased our emissions um, by four or five percent last year, rather than reduce them, it means that the remaining budget for our four years to 2025 uh, is now much more limited uh, than it was. So instead of talking of a, a more gradual decrease of around four percent, uh, if we're to meet that budget, we're now talking about around about 8% of a reduction per year. And that, that's an imperative which is legally binding. Um, there will be accountability for the departments that don't meet that target. Um, there will be climate action plans which will have to be, um, I suppose, modified to enable changes in direction to occur. But I don't expect the sectoral values that have been allocated to change that much. Um, so it, it, it's imperative on departments um, 
such as uh, those dealing with waste or transport or agriculture or energy. It's imperative that they get moving on actually realistically meeting that budget value. Because if we don't meet that budget value in 2025, it moves on to the next five-year period. It's not going to go away. Um, and therefore, the burden that we progressively pass onto the next generation gets bigger and bigger. You know, I've witnessed the kicking for touch approach um, over 20 years. And, you know, we've seen where that has got us today. Uh, and I, I hope that we've got over that and that we will actually take serious steps now to actually meet the legally binding requirements that we now have for the first time. Um, and that, that's a great step forward because, you know, the, I feel like voluntary approach to climate change has simply failed us miserably. Um, it's only when, you know, a government official or a public uh, official feels the, if you like, the weight of a legal challenge coming down on them uh, that uh, action, I think, then becomes more crucial and becomes more radical. So let's hope. Let's hope indeed. And it shouldn't really be like that for people, should it? It should be, you know, we need to do this. We, and you were chatting about carbon credits there. That's a whole other thing, isn't it? So if we keep going over emissions, then we buy into credits. But not all the countries in the world are going to be able to afford to do that. You know, so it's a bit nuts. But just as a sort of aside to that, you know, we're, we're aware of what might happen if we don't manage to keep it sort of to 1.52 degrees. But there's been not a lot of work done about what if we get to three degrees, four degrees, five degrees. I know there's been some, there's a new book out, isn't there? The Future We Choose that's sort of saying if we, you know, our, the world could become unlivable in vast areas. People won't be able to stay outdoors for long periods of time in the hottest countries. Food could become scarce. Are there any sort of worst, sort of worst case projections for Ireland if that were to be the case? There are worst case projections for um, the hottest parts of the world at the moment. And, um, you know, I, I've looked at some of the model output for places like the Persian Gulf. And, um, you know, what's alarming there is that you get sort of by mid-century mean maximum temperatures. Uh, that's the average mean maximum daily temperatures of over 50 degrees centigrade. Um, now, you know, living in a temperature of 50 degrees centigrade um, means that you can't really do any outside activity, outside work, for example. Um, if the dry bulb temperature, sorry, if the wet bulb temperature uh, goes up above uh, 35 degrees centigrade, which has happened a couple of times in, in the Persian Gulf already and is likely to happen more frequently in places like the North China Plain, like parts of India, uh, your survival time is six hours in that situation outdoors. Um, and that's that that means that there will be parts of the world which will become virtually uninhabitable if we continue on the present trajectory. Now, Ireland won't be among those in the short term, at least. But it will mean that, you know, Ireland will become, if you like, a very attractive destination uh, for many people. And we, we face a lot of population displacement. Um, Firstly, from a lack of ability to, to grow food. Uh, and, you know, we, we're facing famine in the Horn of Africa uh, at the moment. Um, th those kind of situations where the carrying capacity of the land will simply not be enough for the projected population. 
will become more common in the future as climate changes if we, if we don't change our ways. And that will have consequences for mid-latitude countries like Ireland um, in terms of, of our trade links, but in terms of people, if you like, looking for a lifeboat. And, uh, you know, Ireland may become one of those lifeboat economies, um, which, you know, there are very few places in the world where severe heat along the 50 degree level that I've indicated will become common. And we'll be lucky because of the ocean around us. But we will we will be warming at the same time. Um, the, the temperature of Dublin, for example, by the end of the century will be very similar to the temperature of Bordeaux today. Um, and you can look at the way in which cities will be displaced effectively southwards. Um, and, and that will have consequences for us, I think, which we have to realise may not all be good. Well, I knew there was I knew there was a niggly reason why I moved back from Australia. <laughs> well, Australia, I think, is one of the most vulnerable countries of all. You know, it's 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 the one of the driest continent. It's the continent where I think extremes of of weather and climate are already experienced on a grand scale, um, and it's unfortunately the country which is not helping matters at the moment in the international negotiations. Now, I uh, I've been to I think about ten cops at this stage. And sadly, Australia uh, tends to get offered the the what's it called the fossil of the week award by NGOs together with the United States and other countries. But um, I hope that, you know, the change in politics in Australia in the last year will, I think, uh, help in, in galvanising the Australian population as to their vulnerability and the need to play their part internationally. It's a, we all have to play our part internationally. Um, Ireland, although we may not be in the first line of uh, of victims, I think has to show that, uh, well, if we don't do our bit, how can we lecture anybody else? And and that's you know why I I think is very important for Ireland. Just to finish from my side, anyway, Shauna. Yeah, this, I mean it's quite a <clears throat> a chilling kind of uh, forecast on one level when you look at the the absolute extremes. But I suppose you you mentioned let's hope there as well at one point in another answer. And um, we talk about futures that you can choose. And in the sense of that type of tipping point or seesaw sort of balance uh, analogy, I mean, do you remain hopeful? You can. I mean, you can tip. The solutions are there, right? So people taking actions and governments taking actions and corporations and consumers and so on, you feel hopeful that balance can be tipped back in the right direction? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to keep hopeful. You have to be um, a prisoner of hope. As Desmond Tutu once described himself as a prisoner of hope. And I think, you know, I, I think that's something that we have to, to do. Um, we have to remember that we are the dominant species in the, the world because we are adaptable, because we can change when the crisis comes. We are adaptable in food in terms of carrying our energy sources with us to new environments and so on. And I think, you know, that adaptability when it comes to the crunch will be the thing that helps us to get out of the morass we're in at the moment. So uh, I think, you know, there are positive signs. Um, we're beginning to see business and commerce waking up to the problem in a way that they didn't five to ten years ago. We know that uh, governments are beginning slowly to come round to the fact that they have to 
atone for their problems by helping developing countries to develop sustainably. Uh, and we're also seeing individuals in Irish society, um, I think, more sensitised to the issues that, that they, than they were uh, a decade ago. And I think perhaps the most hope comes from young people. The most hope is coming from people who realise that it's their future that's on the line. It's their future that we're mortgaging at the moment. And I think I'm most encouraged by what I've seen among the Fridays for Future people, among the young people in schools, especially among the green schools people, which I think has been a tremendously successful initiative by Antashka. I think we're seeing that those kind of well-educated young people will have the, the ammunition to change direction in the years ahead. So I, I, I base my hope on that, basically. <laughs> I mean, I th I was going to say, is there a climate myth that you'd like to burst for us? One that kind of gets your goat, but I, I'm mindful maybe we should end on that very hopeful note. <laughs> unless there, unless there's a burning a burning myth that you hear over and over and over again, maybe down the pub, maybe walking around the streets. Yeah, the the myth is that oh, climate has always changed, and anything we do will be ineffectual. Uh, I think we've moved beyond that. That's the statement that was appropriate to uh, previous generations, but no longer is it appropriate to us. And I think we have to come to terms with that myth and bust it for all it's worth. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed what you heard, be sure to subscribe to Tipping Point wherever you get your podcasts.